Good morning, everyone. For those I haven't had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Jason. I'm the pastor of New Hope Church. We are a multicultural church that loves to share the hope of Jesus, the hope of community, and the hope of new life. Um, Jothi, my wife, and I met about 19 years ago. We met each other at an Indian conference. And we have mutual friends. I knew her sister. She knew some of my cousins. And between 2003 and 2008, we'd see each other at different events. But it was in 2008 where we really reconnected. Sometimes people ask us about our story and what, uh, what connected us, you know, whenever we saw each other again in 2008. And you might expect us to say that there were sparks <laughs> or it was spiritually motivated, like the Lord spoke to us saying, this is the one. That wasn't the case. Um, Really, what connected us in those early days was something that you probably wouldn't expect. It's kind of silly. We both love the show Scrubs. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever seen Scrubs before, but it was a, it's, a, it's a comedy based on like a, the, a resi the residency process of, of doctors. And every week we'd talk about our favorite characters or our favorite episodes. Or if there was a new episode that we saw, we would talk about uh, that particular episode. We connected over something that was unlikely. Thank God it wasn't the foundation of our relationship, all right? There's more to us than that now. But I say this because sometimes in our relationships, we connect with people in, a, in unexpected places and over unexpected things. It's probably true of some of your relationships. You might have certain friendships that were, it might be really deep today, but when it first started, it wasn't that deep. It was just over something that you, maybe you had a common interest, like a common or shared activity or hobby that you both enjoyed. Um, now, the thing is, it's also true of our relationship with God. When you think about connecting with God, you probably think of situations like, like scenarios like this, a Sunday morning, a service, right? We're singing to the Lord. You're hearing his word. You think about connecting with God in terms of retreating. You get away. Maybe you go to the cloisters. That's as far as you go. Or Bear Mountain, right? Or if you're able to go on a church retreat or retreat with some friends, you want to get away from everything so that you can connect with the Lord. And that's all wonderful and that's good. But what if I told you that God wants to connect with you over something that you wouldn't expect in a place that you think is unlikely? What if he wants to connect with you in your work? We're, we started a series last week called Made for This, and it's all about what God has made us for. You might think of your, your calling and your career, and you think, might think about the very specific thing that God has made you for, but this series is all about the things that he has made humanity for. Last week, we saw that he made us for wonder. Next week, we're going to see that he made us for intimacy. He's made us for humility and dignity, boundaries. He's made us for redemption. And today we'll see that God has made us for work. And you might say, I might have lost you when I said God wants to connect with us and work because you probably think of, uh, of connecting with God in the morning before work or when you get home after work or in, at the end of the day when all the work is done. Or you might be thinking about, you might think of connecting with God on your Sabbath, the day that you don't work, but connecting with God in the midst of work? Like, how can that be? Well, if we're going to connect with God and experience him in this way, we're going to have to overcome a few obstacles. And we're going to look at three today. It's not the whole thing. It's not everything, the only obstacles you'll face. But here are three common obstacles we find when it comes to connecting with God in our work. We're going to see the obstacle of finding God's design, finding meaning, and finding God's power. All right? Finding 
God's design, finding meaning, and God's power. So let's look at the first, finding God's design. Genesis 1 is a creation account of how it all started. We see that God created the heavens and the earth. It's everything that, that, that is in, our nat- in the natural universe, it was created by the Lord. We read about God creating light, designating night and day, planting trees, fruits, gardens, animals to cover and team all over the earth. And all of this builds up to what C.G. read for us in German. All of it builds up to the crown of his creation when he creates us. And why? Is that kind of like self-absorbed to say that? (laughs) That humans would say that we are the crown of creation? No, it's what God tells us in his word. And in fact, it's emphasized here as well. Because he gives us something that no one and nothing else in creation has. He gives us this remarkable gift. Let's read verse 1, 26 through 28. And then 2. Verse 15 and then 19 and 20 again. I'm going to read verse 26 in English. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 15, 2 verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Verses 19 and 20. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was was not found a helper fit for him. So if you notice, several times it's mentioned that we are made in the image of God. This is what the gift that God has given us that nothing and no one else in all of creation has. Now, it can mean several things to be made in the image of God. Ways that we are unlike other things in creation. We are relational. We have the capacity for relationships and love. Deep love. Love that mirrors God's love. We are rational. Right? We're the only beings on earth that are rational, that we can understand mathematics. We're the only ones who could look out in, in the, at the stars and, and, and contemplate our origin. We're the only ones that are aware that we're going to die. Like animals don't do that. They don't walk around thinking, I'm going to die one day. We do. We have an awareness of our death. We are rational. Right? We're moral. There are moral implications to what we do. We can't live like the beasts of the earth. There's some animals that eat their young. Right? Like... Clearly, that's not something that we can do, right? We don't, we don't sacrifice our children. Like, there are things that we don't do because unlike other things in creation, we are moral beings. As you can see, there are many ways that we are like God. But what's what really unique here, when they mention, I think it's four times it's mentioned that we were created in the image of God. What immediately surrounds that designation is a call to work. Have dominion. Govern. Create. He puts them in a garden. Cultivate, bring out the good of the ground, bring out the goodness of what's there. You're given, he's given authority. 
name the animals. He's not just named, but he has the power and the authority to name. He's given the permission to do that. And in doing so, he, he mirrors the God who governs, the God who creates, the God who names, and the God who cultivates. In expressing and living this out, he is living out, Adam and Eve both would live out the image of God. Our work is not a necessary evil, right? It's the way we think about it. It's a part of paradise. That's what Tim Keller writes in Every Good Endeavor, that work was a part of paradise. It's before the fall. It was a part of what it meant to live in unity with God, and it was a part of what it meant to worship him. It can be an opportunity to mirror him and live out his image in the way that we govern, name, create, and cultivate. But... We struggle to connect with God because we have bought the lie that work was designed to make money, which will be the source of meaning, stability, and happiness in our lives. We've bought into that lie. No, work is a part of God's design. And if you're going to connect with him in work, you've got to be able to see that for the lie that it is and realize that you were designed to work. I had a friend several years ago um, tell me that he, he was really excited uh, to start a Bible study at work. Um, and he worked in finance, and he was like, you know, I just, I don't really get to think about God very much, and I just want to start a Bible study, get some other co-workers together, and maybe God will use that, and use my, the, um, therefore use my work somehow to glorify him. And I was, I was really happy for him that he was able to do that, and I was excited for him. I didn't want to, like, discourage him. But at the same time, I wanted him to see that your work is not spiritual when the Bible study begins. Your work in and of itself is spiritual because it was never intended to be experienced apart from the presence of God. It was never intended for you to experience it apart from reflecting and mirroring him. Like, it's, it doesn't just, it's not just spiritual whenever you start with the prayer. It, the, the actual mirroring and reflecting God in governing, in naming, in creating, in cultivating, and experiencing God as you collaborate with him, that makes it spiritual. There are probably a lot of people you want to mirror in, as you think about your career. Like you might think about your boss. One day you want your boss's job, so you want to mirror your boss, right? You want to do what your boss does and imitate your boss. Or if you think about your industry, you think about people who are really successful, and you think, if I want to be successful, I've got to imitate that person. But if our work is going to be spiritual again, and we're going to see God's design, we have to think about how can I mirror the Lord in the way I manage in the authority he's given me, in the way that I name things, in the way that I create, in the way that I cultivate what's good in this particular sphere that I'm in. You have to have an eye for how you can mirror the Lord because it was always designed to be experienced with God and in, ref in, in reflecting him. I know you've probably heard me say before that 90% of parenting is faking enthusiasm, right? My kids aren't here today, but usually they would come from children's church and show me what they've made. And I'd be like, oh, my gosh, that's the most amazing thing I've ever seen. That's incredible. It's going to go on our fridge and, and all of that. And recently I've been reading a book that kind of rebuked me a bit. Um, so I apologize for saying that um, again. <laughs> it's, by, it's a book called The Soul of Desire. It's by a man, psychiatrist named Kurt Thompson. And he talks about how important a child's creativity is for their development and how when they present whatever it is they've created, how our response to that helps encourage more creativity for them. It's so important for their development. And he also says it actually reveals God's design. I'm going to read a quote from him. Even at a young age, 
A child's yearning is to make something that, when you see it, will delight you at the very sight of it. Granted, she might consider it to be beautiful in a different way than we adults think of beauty. Should you ask her whether it's beautiful and then further require to her to provide a philosophical account of what beauty is, she will look at you strangely. But the point is that early in our development, we humans are already living as people who are made to make things. And we deeply want those created artifacts to be objects of beauty. Like, I don't have to teach my kids. Like, if I put a box there or a couple of boxes there, I don't have to teach them how to put things together. They're instinctively going to try to organize things and make something out of what's there. If I give them colors and crayons, even if it doesn't look good, they're going to instinctively try to create something that they think will delight my heart, that they want to share with me. He goes on to say that beauty can be seen in making tools, raising vegetables, painting canvases, painting houses, making food with fullness of flavor, surgical work and the invisibility of suture lines, right? Moving from tension to resolution in concerto or other kinds of music, beauty can be seen, created, and cultivated all around us. And when we do that, we are reflecting the Lord who governs, who names, who creates and cultivates. It's a part of his design. So ask yourself, if you believe this, not just intellectually, but functionally, if you think about it in your life, is it expressed in your life? Or do you think that work is about making money to support yourself, to support others? It's purely materialistic. It's to be independent. You don't have to rely on anyone else so you work so you can make money. Or it's to gain resources, to gain a reputation, to prove something to the naysayers who thought you'd never be anything in life. Has someone hijacked the purpose of work? Have you believed that you can't connect with God during work? Or do, you, or do you believe that it was never meant to be experienced apart from him? It's a part of paradise. You won't connect with him until you see that it's been designed to be experienced with him and in order to reflect him. That's the first obstacle. Second one, finding meaning in our work. We all want our work to be meaningful, right? We want it to matter. And I got to tell you, this is increasingly, excuse me, increasingly difficult. Not because there isn't meaningful work out there. There probably is a lot of things that we can do. There's, there's a lot that we can do today, more so than probably in the history of the world, you know. Before, you'd probably just do whatever your parents did. But now you've got options. People say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I mean, you, then you really, the, the options are limitless in what you could be. And there's a lot of pressure that we feel. It's difficult also because the world is much smaller. And we can connect with people. Like right now I can open my phone and I can t tweet something that I hope can go viral. And, and, and to, to some degree, the world is at my fingertips, right? It can reach someone in a part of the world. They could read something and be impacted by what I do in a way that it was never done in history. So we know that the world is smaller, that there are a lot of things that we can do. And we are told that we can change the world. So when you pick a career or you choose to do something, you ask yourself, is this everything I could be doing? Will this change the world? Is this really meaningful? I had a friend of mine who was a relationship coach. And, you know, this is in his early 30s where, you know, he counseled and coached so many different people and helped people through their relationships. But he was struggling to find meaning and, and value in what he was doing. He said, Jason, I just feel like I'm not doing enough. And I said, you know how relative that is? 
Like, if we lived in any other century and I said, here's a guy in his, in his early 30s who started his own business as a relationship coach and is actually affecting relationships, not just in the people who are in close proximity to him in New York City, but he's actually doing it across the world. Like, that's a life well lived. <laughs> that's, a, that's a life that actually has reached people. But because we compare ourselves to other people, because the world feels like it's at our fingertips, because you feel like you're supposed to change the world in some dramatic fashion, you feel like whatever it is that you do lacks meaning and purpose. It's relative. I mean, I think about how, um, how, how some of the things that have uh, impacted this as well is the fact that our work is also supposed to be an expression of our individuality and identity in ways that weren't true before. Before, like, I mean, this is true in a lot of Eastern cultures still, where if, you know, here in, in, the, in the U.S., the first question when someone meets you is, what do you do? Like, if in India, they'll ask, who are your parents? Because <laughs> you are identified by your relationships in a lot of Eastern cultures, but more in Western cultures, it's about what you do. So there's a pressure that when you choose a vocation, this is the thing that's going to define you. I remember when I first attended a block association meeting um, uh, a couple years, uh, well, when we first moved to the city, when people would introduce themselves, they would say, like, I, I'm a lawyer, I just, you know, who works with these nonprofits, and I just came back from D.C. Oh, I, I, wor- I just, just traveled back last night from working in a developing country with the poor. And I'm like, I'm a pastor? <laughs> I don't, <laughs> that doesn't sound as attractive, it doesn't sound as meaningful. But in saying that, like, have you ever been unemployed? Or if you've ever lived uh, or, uh, or worked for so- someone or a company that wasn't your ideal, like, career? If you've ever experienced anxiety in telling people what you do, like, have you ever experienced that? Because when you tell someone what it is that you do, you expect it or they expect it somehow to define you, to not just describe you but define you. So there's a pressure that we feel in finding meaning because our work now is supposed to give us a sense of identity. To To be clear, our work does give us meaning because, as I said before, we are designed by God to work. We are supposed to have meaning in our work. But there's a fine line. Let me explain what I mean by that. So I was a chaplain of a college in India in 2009. And I was there for about a year and a half. And uh, Jyoti and I got engaged to be married. We got engaged then in 2010. And I moved back to the U.S. And at first people asked me, what am I going to do? I mean, I didn't know what I was going to do next. To be honest, I didn't even want to be a pastor then. I didn't think about being a pastor at that point. I I really didn't know what I wanted to do. And for the first three weeks, I thought, this is cool, it's all right, I get to explore, see my options, you know, find out what I want to do next. But after about three weeks, man, (laughs) like the anxiety, right, the sense of purposelessness, meaninglessness, I would cry, like almost every day I'd put my face to the wall and say, God, if you don't open a door for me, nothing's going to change. I just got engaged to be married. Her dad's going to expect me to like have a job and to be able to take care of my family. Like, what are you doing? And it was like silence. And there was such a deep work that God was doing in me. And if you've ever been unemployed, you know what that feels like, where you want to do something meaningful. And that's good. That's part of his design. To be clear, our work does give us meaning. But here's the fine line. We are made to find meaning in bringing value to the world because we were made to do that. But what ends up happening is we use our work as a means of gaining value. Right? God made us to work, and that's because he wants us to bring out the beauty of what's there, to add value to the world, cultivate it. 
but we use our work not to bring value to the world, but to gain value. This is going to be my sense of identity. This is going to define my worth. This is going to make me lovable or finally get a sense of approval and affirmation in my life. Work was once a means of bringing value, but now instead of using work to bring value, we use our work to gain value. So we struggle to connect with, our, with God and work because our value doesn't come from him, reflecting him as we govern and name and create and cultivate. No, instead, we disconnect our work from him. And we look to our work now to give us that sense of value. Is this true of you? Do you struggle to find meaning because your work is a means of gaining value as opposed to bringing value? The third obstacle. So we looked at finding God's design, finding meaning. The third one is finding God's purpose. I'm sorry, power. Finding God's power. Now, the most obvious thing about the difficulty of connecting with God in work is that our work is challenging. There are a lot of things that we don't like about it. And that's a part of the fall, right? That nothing comes easy anymore. Adam and Eve were to garden, were to create, were to name, were to cultivate and govern and subdue. They were supposed to do all of that, and they could experience the fruitfulness of that. But because of their disobedience against God, it had a ripple effect reaching us that now the ground is cursed. We gain fruit, sure, but it's with the, the sweat of our brow, and it's difficult, and it's painful. And the most obvious thing about connecting with God is that we struggle at work. It's challenging. And many of us are called into spaces and places where the effects of the fall are vivid. Brokenness is apparent. Like, we see it. It's constantly on display. You may work with people who are underprivileged. You may work with the poor. Or you may work with, for some really wealthy and maybe greedy people who, don't, who, who dehumanize their employees, right? So the, the effects of the fall are apparent. You may see people dying, or you might see them die on a regular basis if you're in healthcare, or if you're a caregiver to children or the elderly, right? If you're at home, whatever, in, if you work in hospice, you might, you, you might see their vulnerability constantly on display, you're confronted with our fragility. You're confronted with our mortality. And it's hard in the midst of all of those challenges to find light in the darkness. And when I say connect with God at work, you're like, how, in the, how on earth am I supposed to do that when I work in such a toxic environment when there's darkness that abounds? You want me to connect with God and experience him there? But these obstacles at work, if you're willing, can be opportunities to experience power. God's power. I got to, and I'm telling you everything that I've ever done. <laughs> um, I taught middle school when we, uh, in, in 2014. Um, I was a church planning intern here, and I had to get another, like a, another job, and I chose one of the most difficult things you could do. I taught middle schoolers. I don't know why I did that. I wasn't trained in that professionally, but there was a church that started in middle school for kids who would fall through the cracks of the public school system, and so uh, they were gracious enough to hire me, um, and so I taught Bible, writing, math, and science <laughs> um, in 2014, and I had no idea what I was doing. And I remember one day in, in class, Every time I would turn to write on the board, there's no dignified way to say this. I'm just going to say it. They would make farting noises, okay? So um, I would turn around and, and write, and I would hear, I'm not going to make the sound, but they would make a farting noise, okay? And then I would get so frustrated, and I told them, 
I said, if you're going to, this is my brilliant idea. If you're going to keep doing that, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to teach anymore. I'm going to stop the lesson. So what do they do? They don't care. For 45 minutes, they continue to make farting noises in class. And I just felt so powerless. Like, I had no control of the classroom. And, you know, during those days, I remember how much I dreaded going in. I thank God that I had, like, other, the, the, the staff environment was, in, it was great. And I had co- my colleagues loved the Lord, and we would pray together. But I'll tell you, every, every day I prayed for my students by name. I mean, they came from very challenging circumstances. Most of them only, were, only had single-parent homes, or they were the only person speaking English in their home, and they would have to go home, and they had the frustration of no one explaining it to them, and they'd have to come back, and then we would hold them accountable to doing good work. And you can imagine the frustration they would experience regularly and the ways that they would act out. So I would pray for them by name and ask God to give me the strength and give them the strength to be able to focus and to care about this. And i got to tell you, it didn't happen overnight. But I would, I would experience his grace and power. Last year, I got to attend the high school graduation of two of my students. And it's the last, last batch of students that actually know me when I go back. Like, no one else knows me there anymore. But I got to graduate them and see them, I'm, so, I'm sorry, see them graduate. And it was such a joy to my heart. The trust that's been developed over the years, it took time. It took God's grace and power. But when you think about all the obstacles at your work, do you also see opportunities for power? God's power for whatever limitation that you experience. For some of you, it might be motivation. If you're in knowledge work and you're a creator, you know how intimidating it is to look at a blank screen and think, do I have what it takes to write today, to create today? Someone once, before taking the Enneagram, they sized me up and they said, we think you're, I think you're a nine. I said, why? <laughs> I'm a pastor, so I'm a peacemaker. It's something that I've got to do. But also because I guess peacemakers are prone to, prone to sloth, <laughs> I guess. And so and I, that felt real to me. That the peacemaking thing, I'm not all about Enneagram, so this might be going over some of your heads, but like if you're not into it too. But, but like the, the slothfulness, the fear of like, oh, I just want to retreat and I don't want to do anything at all. I just want to nap all day because I'm intimidated to create. I don't want to, like it's motivation that I need. Maybe what you need, where you need God's power is in motivation or it's in distraction. God, help me to focus today. Or creativity, give me new insight today. In cultivation, help me to see what's there and draw out what's the best of employees or products or whatever else that you do. Give me the ability to name things at work or to govern and manage well. What is it for you? Whatever obstacle is there, whatever darkness might be there, maybe it's an opportunity to experience God's power. As you govern and name, create and cultivate. The work itself can be an opportunity to connect with God. The darkness is not something that opposes your, the opportunity to experience God. The darkness is actually what provides the condition for it. As you look to him in dependence and trust. In all of this, I think what's one of the beautiful things about Jesus' life. He spent the vast majority of it in obscurity. It's a craftsman, probably making chairs and tables, right? Like, if you think about the value of Jesus' life, you tend to, what we know is the last three years of his ministry, and of course, like, that's the ministry of Jesus. But it was fitting to God, and it was pleasing to God that he would spend most of his life living in an obscure place, doing an obscure thing among an obscure people. And he teaches us how to be human, and not only that, he brings us back home. 
Because his sacrifice restores us to God so that we can experience God, not just in environments like this, but in all of life, especially in our work, as he redeems and renews creation through our work. He gives us, his love defines us in a way that our work never could. His, his love and what he has done gives us value in a way that our work never could so that we may be freed not to find our identity in our work, but to do our work from a place of our identity being in him. His love and power breaks through the darkness just as it broke through in our lives. And it ought to give us the confidence. If his love and power could break through our darkness, it should give us the confidence that he could do that in the darkness that we experience at work as well. Do you see that? Your work is not disconnected from him. If you are willing, it's where his image, presence, love, and power can emerge.